0: Welcome to Yo and Yo's podcast. We've had the privilege of advising Michigan businesses for over 95 years, and we want to share our knowledge with you. Covering tax, accounting, technology, financial, and advisory topics relevant to you and your business, Yo and Yo's podcast is hosted by industry and subject matter experts, where we go beyond the beans. So if you want to stay in the know about business issues and trends that affect you, then keep listening, because this is Everyday Business with Yo and Yo.
1: Hi, I'm your host, Dave Jewell, Principal and Tax Service Line Leader at Yo & Yo. Welcome to this episode of Everyday Business. Today, we're going to talk about all things sales tax. With me today is Kelly Brown, Tax Manager in our Saginaw office. Kelly, thanks for joining me today.
2: Thanks for inviting me, Dave.
1: All right, Kelly. So I know not very much about sales tax and you happen to be our firm's expert in the area of sales tax. So I look forward to this conversation and Uh, informing our listeners on what's the latest and greatest in the area of sales tax. So let's dive right in. All right, so we're at the three year mark of the landmark Wayfair Supreme Court decision, which is referenced quite a bit when we talk about sales tax. How has this changed sales tax over the last three years?
2: Well, at first there was panic by many who had followed the case, as well as outrage and an overall sense of it's just not fair. In the days, weeks and months following the decision, States followed South Dakota's leads, many of them nearly copying their law, while others tweaked it a little bit, and some made up their own version of economic nexus. Meanwhile, businesses either buried their heads in the sand over it or struggled to quickly implement the required solutions. Some states responded really aggressively by sending notices to sellers, while other states struggled to keep up with the influx of newly registered sellers. Um, Sometimes you couldn't get through to the states by phone for days and days because they were just so busy taking phone calls. Of the 45 states that collect sales tax, to date, 44 of them have implemented economic nexus laws requiring businesses without physical presence in the state to collect their state and local sales tax. The last holdout has pending legislation, so we expect this to be on the table real soon. After the first year and a half following Wayfair, things started to settle down a bit. Then the next round of legislation started where states began implementing marketplace laws.
1: Okay, so what exactly are those? What are are marketplace laws? Help our listeners out.
2: These are the laws that require the online marketplace platforms such as eBay, Amazon, Etsy, Walmart Marketplace, and other similar sites to collect sales tax for the sales that take place on their selling platform. In general, this was a huge win for small business owners who sold only on these types of platforms, but it too wasn't without complications. Overall, for the smaller sellers who got caught up in economic nexus due to their transaction counts, it provided some relief on the sales tax compliance and ultimately increased sales tax collections for the state. So that was a win.
1: Okay, so you talk about small sellers a little bit. So how do these transaction counts affect small sellers and the sales tax collected?
2: When economic nexus laws first came into play, many of them mimicked South Dakota's law of $100,000 in sales or 200 transactions in the state. The 200 transactions portion of the legislation brought in many small time sellers who sold mainly lower cost items. This was disturbing as sometimes their compliance costs, the cost that it took them to file in these states, the sales tax returns and figure out how much sales tax to collect, Sometimes that could actually exceed the amount of tax the seller was collecting, and it became quite burdensome for these sellers, and it was really quite frustrating. So as the states saw this flood of smaller sellers coming in, some decided to keep the dollar threshold, but then do away with the transaction count. There continues to be changes in the laws, but 2019 seemed to be the biggest year for moving the legislation around in that realm. Over the past three years, some states have lowered their dollar threshold, like Tennessee, went from $500,000 in sales down to $100,000 in sales to trigger the collection obligation. While others have increased the dollar threshold, such as California, who also ended up eliminating the transaction account portion of their bill, and they've just gone to a flat $500,000 in sales before a seller is required to collect in their state.
1: Okay, so seeing things move around and states having different rules, different thresholds, uh, everything seems to be all over the place. So what do you see currently as the outlook of sales tax for multi-state sellers?
2: There's a lot of speculation among sales tax professionals regarding what's next. We're nearing the three-year mark for many of the state laws, and often states like to have a full three years to look at before they start auditing. So there's a lot of talk that out-of-state businesses may be getting audit notices in the coming year or years. With the huge influx in sales tax dollars, states have the funding to increase or expand on the audit side. Arizona is said to be using data analytics to look for additional noncompliance, and they're likely not the only ones doing this. It'll be interesting to see how aggressive the states will become, since in most cases, the increase in collections has exceeded their expectations, and one wonders if they'll either leave well enough alone and perhaps just enjoy the bounty or perhaps try to at least make compliance a bit less burdensome for sellers by streamlining it a bit more.
1: Yeah, that will be interesting to see how that works out and how aggressive the states are. I think historically they've been pretty aggressive because they know a lot of dollars are out there, but we will see what happens. All right. So outside of Wayfair and remote sellers, what are you seeing regarding Michigan sales and use tax? Just kind of narrowing that down to our home state here in Michigan. What's going on?
2: I've worked with clients on several audits and have also gone through client audit findings looking for areas where we could contest the tax being assessed by the auditors. The audits I tend to get brought in on the most are the ones for construction companies and contractors, which is also an area where we see quite a few questions from clients as Michigan's sales and use tax rules for contractors can be quite complicated. Even the concept of sales tax versus use tax can be a point of confusion for many.
1: Okay, can you can you uh, go over that briefly just to help clear up some of that confusion?
2: Yes, so sales tax is the tax one pays when making a purchase of a taxable item. So that would be lumber, insulation, light fixtures. Use tax comes into play only when sales tax isn't charged on an otherwise taxable transaction. So if you were to order some light fixtures from a vendor that's in another state and doesn't charge you the Michigan sales tax, you would then owe use tax on it. Or let's say you're a retailer and you buy all your inventory from a wholesaler who doesn't charge you sales tax because you've provided a tax exemption certificate. At some point, a light bulb goes out in your store and you replace it with one from your inventory of light bulbs that you have available for sale. When you remove that light bulb from inventory and use the item, it subjects the business to the use tax on that item since it's no longer going to be sold to an end user. You as the retailer are now the end user and you owe the use tax.
0: Okay,
1: that makes sense. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. Uh, what other issues are you seeing with contractors specifically?
2: The state of Michigan is actually trying to better educate both the industry and tax practitioners. But again, the rules are complicated. There's still quite a bit of confusion, especially regarding exempt projects.
1: Okay, so on exempt projects, do you mean projects for non-profit entities and governments?
2: Yes, these are definitely a source of confusion. While many nonprofits are used to having exemptions, the exemptions for real property construction are very limited. There's a set list of, li- of projects that you can use for these exemptions. It includes nonprofit hospitals, qualified nonprofit housing, church sanctuaries, so not your office, your fellowship hall, classrooms, only the worship area of the church, qualified air or water pollution control facilities, qualified convention facilities, qualified data centers, certain Indian tribe property with special state agreements, qualified enterprise zones, foundations for certain machinery or equipment used in industrial processing, eligible brownfield plan activities, and some very limited agricultural uses. So while that seems like a really lengthy list, it was definitely a mouthful, You'll notice that township halls, food shelters, schools, those are not on that list. And several of the items on the list are prefaced with "qualified," so these exemptions need pre-approval. They're not just automatic or up to the interpretation of the contractor or the entity having the facility built.
1: Okay, so it sounds like the state goes into quite a bit of detail, uh, trying to lay out as specifically as possible what's subject to to tax and what's not. So if this is all spelled out, where does the confusion? Why?
2: Contractors and nonprofit entities don't always understand their responsibilities or obligations, and they often don't look to the rules. The organizations use their exemption to make their other purchases, and they're not always well versed in what the rules are. And there's that logical thought process that an organization that is exempt in one area is, of course, exempt in other areas. In one case, I've seen the governmental agency insisting to the contractor that the contractor could just go and use the township sales tax exemption certificate um, to go buy all the building materials exempt from tax. Fortunately, the contractor had a good understanding and reached out to us to just confirm that so we could provide some information to the township that was really pushing them to do this with their exemption form.
1: Okay, so contractors aren't allowed to use the governmental agency's exemption certificate, but couldn't the agency just go out and buy the materials with the contractor or for the contractor and not pay the sales tax?
2: Yes, it's correct that the contractor can't use the governmental agency's exemption certificate, but if instead the governmental agency went out itself and bought all the materials, which logically seems like a really good fix, it still doesn't work out the way you'd think. This is because in Michigan, the contractor is responsible for the use tax on all the materials used in creating real property. So that would be buildings, pavilions, or other similar type structures. So even if the nonprofit or governmental agency goes out and buys the materials exempt from tax and then hires a contractor to do all the work, the contractor is still ultimately responsible for the use tax on all of the items. And the state does come back and build a contractor for this. We've seen it. What this also means is that sometimes the contractor is having to chase down receipts from the purchaser or put together estimates on what the materials would have cost in order to appropriately pay the use tax to the state if the entity did go out and purchase their own materials.
1: How does the contractor then pay the use tax?
2: Generally contractors are either monthly, quarterly, or annual filers for Michigan sales and use tax, depending on the dollar amounts that they're reporting. So then the state goes and determines this based on their historical filings. Um, there's a line on their return where the contractor includes the use tax liability for the filing period. Most do this through the Michigan Treasury online portal online.
1: Okay, so are you saying that this is all on the honor system then?
2: To some extent, yes, until the contractor is selected for audit. Usually the bigger contractors and construction companies get selected for audit every three to four years. So ultimately... Every year is audited either directly or indirectly by the state.
1: Okay, so clarify then what directly or indirectly means. I I think I understand the directly part, but maybe not indirectly. So spell that out for us if you would.
2: So let's say an auditor comes in to audit a four-year period for a company. The auditor nearly always requests the fixed asset schedule for the entity, so all the additions for the years under audit. This would include equipment like forklifts, backhoes, pickup trucks, the big purchases of items that they use to do the work that doesn't become part of their end building or projects that they're doing for their customers. Generally, the contractor needs to show that the sales or use tax was paid on each and every item they purchase, as these are bigger purchases and nearly always subject to sales or use tax. Then the auditor will generally request a sample of contracts and receipts only from the most recent year, and that's what they use to calculate an error rate that the auditor then applies to the other open years that they have under audit. So if in the supplies account, the auditor finds that 5.5% of their sample didn't have sales or use tax collected or paid, then they'd applied that same 5.5% to the supplies account in any other year they're auditing. So that would be the indirect um, portion of the audit. The audits can be really brutal in just dealing with the deluge of audit requests. For a larger company, that could be hundreds, sometimes even thousands of invoices. For a smaller one, not nearly as many, but it's still quite an administrative burden.
1: Yeah, that makes sense now. Unfortunately, I've been on the other side of an audit a handful of times on sales and use tax where they calculate that error rate and then extrapolate it across the different stratas. It can be an ugly result. Definitely. Thanks for clarifying that. All right. So what else are you saying in the trenches then, since this is what you do on a day in and day out basis?
2: Well, vendor contracts can be a big point of contention in an audit and may provide a contractor with a false sense of security. For instance, many contractors purchase supplies for a job from vendors outside of Michigan. The contract wording may state that all sales tax is included in the price, but then not break out the sales tax on the invoice. I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that this would definitely hold some sway in a courtroom if there was to be a determination of who is ultimately responsible for the sales tax. But from the state's perspective, on a contract that doesn't break out the Michigan sales tax separately, they're holding firm that unless the purchaser can prove that the vendor paid the appropriate sales tax to the state of Michigan, the contractor is then responsible for the use tax. I haven't seen a case where the contractor has gone back to the vendor to get proof, Uh, Sometimes the vendors are no longer even in business, so that's kind of hard for them. Contractors need to make sure they've got firm documentation showing that the sales tax was paid at the time of purchase or that they've gone and paid the use tax on on the items afterwards.
1: How does a contractor show that they've paid use tax?
2: Auditors usually request copies of the sales and use tax returns filed by the contractor, as well as the reconciliations prepared by the contractor. So the reconciliation is where the contractor details out the purchases that made up the amount of the use tax reported on the returns. Depending on the volume that the contractor has, some contractors have a really good software system where this determination is made each time an invoice comes in and is entered into their accounting system. Others have a more manual system, such as even a paper file for each reporting period, or sometimes an Excel spreadsheet to detail this information.
1: All right, but what about businesses that aren't general contractors constructing buildings, but contractors doing just smaller jobs?
2: I've seen some confusion with electricians, especially ones that not only perform services, but also have a storefront where they sell parts for property owners to purchase for replacement or to repair things. In cases where the contractor is performing work, there's confusion as to what to do with the parts they're using. Often the first inclination is to detail this on the invoice and add sales tax at the end. So let's say they're going through a property and replacing the electrical box and wiring. They'll sometimes just charge their customer the sales tax on each component, and that's not the correct way to do it.
1: Uh, but, But shouldn't the customer be paying sales tax if they're not exempt?
2: not if the item is going to become part of real property. So that's an area where there has to be some interpretation. If instead you're purchasing a refrigerator, having that installed, the refrigerator doesn't become part of real property, part of your house. Um, it, It can be removed fairly easily. So on a situation like that, the customer pays the sales tax on the refrigerator, even if the person selling the refrigerator is installing it. But going back to our example, where there's a new electrical box and wiring, the electrical contractor charges the customer for the components such as the electrical box, the wires, anything else used, but then should not add the sales tax at the end. Instead, the contractor pays the use tax on it because as the installer of the property, which then becomes part of the real estate where you're not going to pull all the wiring out when you move out of your house, um, the contractor is then liable for that, that use tax on the components used.
1: Okay, that's enough to make my head spin. So it seems like there's lots of variables here. So what are what resources are available then to wade through all of these rules?
2: Well, it doesn't hit on everything. I found that my first go-to resource in this area is the Michigan RAB. So that stands for Revenue Administrative Bulletin. So it's RAB 2019-15, which is an 18-page summary put out by the state with an explanation of the sales and use taxation of the construction industry, including the rules for contractors who fabricate some of their own components. The bulletin also includes examples, which can be really helpful in seeing how the rules apply to each situation.
1: That sounds like a fantastic resource for nights that you're having a hard time falling asleep, so that's good (laughs) to know. All right, Akali, any other final items that you'd like to share with us with regard to sales and use tax?
2: Uh, For use tax, this is an area where businesses, especially contractors, need to have a good system in place because audits are getting more and more costly, and this seems to trip up quite a few business owners. For sales tax, retailers want to make sure they're looking at sales tax and making sure they're compliant. It's generally less costly to collect the sales tax from your own customers in the first place instead of having to pay the sales tax out of pocket on audit. Many states have sales tax rates of 8 to 10%, sometimes even more, so, you can imagine having that come not off your bottom line, but off your gross revenues. Um, it can be quite costly. And so, while Michigan exempts services from tax, many states don't. So, that's another area that you want, want to watch out for, um, especially if you're providing services across state lines.
1: Okay, good to know. Yeah, so there's a lot to this, obviously, Kelly, and we're very fortunate to have a resource like you in our firm here who is on top of that and spends a lot of your time in that area. I know you're very helpful to us uh, just as an internal resource and and to our clients when we need to bring you in. So thanks so much for joining us today. And we really appreciate all of your insight and your knowledge that you shared with us with regard to sales and use tax.
2: Thank you.
1: If you're interested in learning more about sales and use tax, visit yoandyo.com where you can find a copy of our show notes and additional resources. Thank you to everyone who joined us today. I'm Dave Jewell, and hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Business with Yo & Yo.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Yo & Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. Yo & Yo's podcast can be listened to on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and of course, our website. Please subscribe, rate, and review. For more business insights, visit our resource center at yoandyo.com, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletters. We'll talk to you next time on Yo & Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. The information provided in this podcast is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast reflect the views of the speakers. This podcast does not constitute tax, accounting, legal, or other business advice or an advisor-client relationship. Before making any decision or taking action, you should consult with a professional regarding your specific circumstances.